Bibles, turn to Acts 19. Our reading today is at verse 11 through verse 20. This morning we meet the seven sons of Siva, mercenaries of exorcism. I know it sounds like a bad video game. I assure you it's worse. Let us pray and then read the scriptures. Our God and Father, we do come and ask for your help. Father, we are helpless unless you answer our prayer. Help us hear. Help us understand. Help us believe. Help us do all according to your holy word. Father, we are a people more desperately in need than we are letting on. Father, we pray that we would not merely experience like wind over a rock the next 30 minutes or so. We pray that the, the good word would be implanted in our hearts and that it would be a reforming word in our lives that by it we would indeed set our faith more firmly, more devotedly, more assuredly upon Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, we ask. May your spirit illumine us with the things before us to your honor and praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 19, verse 11. Beloved, this is the word of God. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who, are, who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. Would you have been there? And if you had been there, would you have been there with joy or dismay? Would you have been hiding on the outer edges of the crowd, embarrassed? Or would you have been up front, close to the action, 
unashamed, warming your hands and face by the fire as the books burned. Beloved, where would you have been? In his report, Luke says the books on magic arts were not privately burned in backyard fire pits. They were burned publicly. A bonfire in the sight of all, he says. And these books were burned willingly. No one commanded they be burned. The impulse to do it came from those who owned them. Are these people friends to you? Or are they strangers? Do you own them or disown them? Will you associate with these folks? Well, maybe this helps your answer. The Lord Jesus Christ is not ashamed of these book burners. Nor should you be. There is something else breathtaking about the bonfire. The books they burned could have been sold for 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, 50,000 pieces of silver in that city on that day was the equivalent of a day's wages for 50,000 men. In today's dollars, five and a half million. Books on magic had an enormous market value in the ancient world. There's a whole world of scholarship on this very subject. Just recently, a book was published by Cambridge University Press on this very subject by a professor at Tel Aviv University. This is no small, weird thing that's happening in our text. It permeated the ancient world. And the books that had the secret incantations, they went for top dollar. At Ephesus, you had one of the top cities for the practice of magic arts. In fact, there is an ancient idiom called the Ephesian letters. It predates the birth of Christ by 400 years. The Ephesian letters is a little idiom that people use to say, do you have the right magical incantation or spell? to keep demons out of your house? Do you have the Ephesian letters? So common was magic art in the city of Ephesus. But on the day described in verse 19, a pile of rare books with secret spells, secret incantations, secret recipes, it's permanently removed from circulation. Gone never to be found by an archaeologist, never to be studied by a historian, never to be passed down to children or grandchildren, never to be sold for cash when times got hard. It's gone. The new Christians of Ephesus did what they could do to make their old sinful habits not become someone's new sinful habits. They made sure their old understanding of the world did not become someone's new understanding of the world. They showed contempt for the wealth of this world, didn't they? In their joy of coming to know Jesus, they took revenge on their former way of living. Have you done that yet? 
I love how Matthew Henry said that. They take revenge on their former way of living. Henry also added these words. Those recovered from sin themselves will do all they can to keep others from falling into it. What do you think of such Christians whose repentance becomes so public? Whose fight against sin is taken so seriously by them? What do you think of these kind of Christians? Who pay such a real and steep cost to follow Jesus Christ? What do you think of such Christians, beloved? Are they the kind you seek? Do you enjoy being around them? Are you embarrassed by them? Or do you celebrate them? For that is exactly what the Spirit of God is doing in our text today. Celebrating these Christians of Ephesus. Do you remember, do you remember Zacchaeus? A chief tax collector, a rich man, after he became a Christian, he said to our Lord Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Luke 19.4. And listen how Isaiah describes the conversion of sinners when the salvation of God appears on the earth. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver, and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. Isaiah 30, 22. The day of salvation has appeared in Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you want Jesus to be that disruptive in the lives of your neighbors, in the lives of your friends? in the lives of your family? Do you want Jesus to be this disruptive in the lives of your children? Do you want Jesus to be this disruptive in your own life? If you desire a Christianity that is not disruptive, if you want a mild-mannered Christianity that lets everyone keep doing what they are already doing, then you should understand, please understand, that such a desire is generated within you not by what is coming, the kingdom of Christ. That desire is generated by what is passing away, the kingdom of Satan. I pray you be persuaded that this is true. And what is passing away? The rule of the devil is passing away. The world is passing away. Satan is the one who whispers in the human heart, keep living the way you want to live. Don't take religion seriously. Don't burn anything. Don't embarrass yourself. Don't take up your cross. Don't deny yourself anything. Don't follow Jesus like those radicals in the Bible did. That's Satan whispering to you. Satan feeds the desire for a kind of faith that does not disrupt a man's life in the world. But Satan's kingdom is passing away. That is the core message of our text this morning. The gates of hell are not prevailing. Do you see it happening? Satan's house is being plundered, ransacked, overrun by the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
It is the height of foolishness, then, to be discipled by the desires of the regime that is falling. There's no future in it. What Luke wants us to see in Ephesus is that the kingdom of Jesus Christ has come upon the world. The rule of Christ is cutting like a hot knife through butter. Christ comes into each and every city as he pleases, in each and every year that he pleases, and he takes to himself the souls that he pleases. That is what Luke wants us to see. And when he does so, when Jesus comes and does this, those men and women who once belonged to the world, they now forsake the world. And they let go of it. They lose it, even though they will remain in it for a time. So look at this hot knife cutting through butter in verses 11 and 12. Extraordinary miracles are coming upon the people of Ephesus. Now, there's a whole sermon in that single phrase, but I'll boil it down to a sentence or two. (laughs) If the scriptures point out that these miracles are extraordinary, do not expect them. But do indeed bow before their report. These are extraordinary miracles, not ordinary. Sickness is being cured through handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul's body. Now, presumably, these are the sweat cloths that Paul put on his body while he was making tents. Remember, he's a tent maker. These claws are being carried away to the sick, and the sick are being healed. By a simple faith, the sick are believing that the power of the risen Christ is in the clothing of the servant Paul. Well, this is just like the woman in Luke 8, who had been bleeding for 12 years. Remember? She came out into a crowded street, snuck up behind the Savior, reached out, touched the hem of his garment, And she was immediately healed from 12 years of bleeding. Well, in Ephesus, the living God has come to make clear that there is an association between Paul and that same Jesus. And that the living God stoops low and condescends to the simple faith of those who believe the risen Christ is being served to sinners through his servants. The messenger of Jesus, Paul, brings the power of Jesus. The sick are healed, diseases are departing, evil spirits are cast out. Now, why does all this happen? To demonstrate the power and authority of Jesus Christ and to establish the credentials of Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Through the message and through the ministry of Paul, Jesus by his exalted power in heaven, is taking darkened and condemned souls, idolaters who once belonged to Satan. He is now reconciling them to his father, and he is giving them a taste of the age to come where his kingdom of eternal life will one day be all in all, wall to wall, without end. But he's giving a taste. Now, the same power, beloved, the same power, is at work in your life right now, if you are a believer. Even though you live long after the time, 
when Jesus was establishing the credentials of his apostles, even so, his power over evil and death is at work in you right now. How? Not in keeping you from sickness. Well, in many cases, he does keep you from sickness. But all the insurance actuaries will be proven correct. And anywhere from 80 to 110 years, none of you will be here. Is that a ding against the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ? No. His power is not toward you in keeping you from sickness, nor in letting you hear demons shriek as they depart from new believers. Christ's power is now being demonstrated in you when even in the face of illness, even in the face of death, you boldly confess Jesus as your certain hope for glory beyond this life. And not only that, his power is demonstrated in you when you turn from evil, when you turn from idols, when you turn from that corruption that is in the world to serve God in holiness of life. So this hope of glory and this turning from sin is the power of Christ's kingdom in you. Now, of course, if you don't turn from sin and don't have hope in the glory of Christ beyond this life, he has not visited you yet. And that should humble you and make you the most earnest petitioner before the night falls on this very day. He will never turn away, never. Those who humble themselves and petition him like beggars in desperation for his grace, he will hear everyone who prays for his salvation through Jesus Christ. May he bring you to such a prayer. Now, something very interesting happened when the power of the risen Christ invaded Satan's rule in Ephesus. And we find this very interesting something in verse 13 and 14. It's the seven sons of Siva. They see an opportunity. In Paul's success, they see a wagon to hitch their wagon to. They want to promote their exorcism business. Luke tells us these men were itinerant Jewish exorcists, which means they roam from town to town, looking for opportunities to offer their exorcism services. They supposed they knew some secret chants, they knew some secret spells, they knew some secret incantations that supposedly drove out demons. And if they could find perhaps one despairing, afflicted soul in a town and effect some kind of reversal in his attitude or some kind of reversal in his outlook on life, then they could suddenly get a long line of new customers that would last for maybe days or weeks or months, and inevitably coinage would start to be exchanged. Food would start to be exchanged. In the ancient world, both in Jewish quarters and non-Jewish quarters, exorcism was an enormous feature of culture, both in the Jews and the Greeks. And the Jews were considered by most peoples everywhere as the best of the best at exorcism. Our Lord Jesus even says this in Matthew chapter 12, 
after he has been accused of casting out Satan by the power of Beelzebul, he turns on the Pharisees and says, your sons cast out demons. He's simply making a cultural notation how, pre- how prevalent this action of exorcism was. Listen to this little quote from Gideon Boca of Tel Aviv University. He describes and summarizes, really, the subject of exorcism in the ancient world. Surveying the entire body of the available evidence, we may discern three different types of exorcism practiced by Jews at the time. Exorcism through the use of naturally exorcistic substances. Those are the recipes. Exorcism by means of prayers and adjurations. Those are the incantations and the spells. And third, exorcism performed by holy men by means of their innate powers. Well, it's that last statement that explains Luke's observation that these exorcists were the sons of a Jewish high priest. Now, nobody can find the name Siva in any of the records of the Jewish high priests. But being sons of a so-called holy man certainly helps the family business if, indeed, you have some kind of heritage. So by the title high priest here, we may be finding just a self-appointed upgrade that Siva made. Maybe he was just a priest, but he put on his sign, well, I can fit the word high in there, paint it on. Or maybe his sons simply did it to gain their market share. Well, so here's what happened. The sons of Sceva discover that Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is successfully casting out evil spirits. This electrifies a very superstitious city. People all over want a piece of what Paul is doing. They do not all want the doctrine and rule of Jesus Christ. They just want their miseries to change. The sons of Siva see an opportunity, and so they try an exorcism on a man who really does have an evil spirit. And notice what they say to the man, verse 13. To cast out the evil spirit, they invoke both the name of Jesus Christ and the name of the Apostle Paul. Now, why are they doing that? For one reason. The sons of Sceva are scavengers. They want to use the technique they think will bring them the greatest success. So they are going to be scavengers on Paul's success. Their exorcism is driven by pragmatism, and it is driven by profit. They want the glory of man, but understand they do not want the rule of Jesus Christ over themselves. They do not want to confess that Jesus is Lord. They do not want to confess the power and the wisdom of the cross. They do not want to quit what they know and rest in the reconciling power of Christ. They do not want to become ordinary and have to take up ordinary lives of neighbor love. They want to succeed in exorcisms. But we have to understand something that's very significant about these seven sons of Sceva. They have what Paul calls in another place, the appearance of godliness while denying the power. That's 2 Timothy 3.5. The seven sons have the appearance of godliness while denying the power. 
To the people of Ephesus, these seven sons look like they are opposed to evil spirits, right? They are trained exorcists. They even speak the name of Jesus and Paul. But here is the problem. They deny that sinners can be reconciled to the power that is above all earthly powers through Jesus Christ and him crucified and him risen and him enthroned and him now at the right hand of God the Father making intercession. They deny that. They deny the faith. But they have the appearance of godliness. They appear to be opposed to evil spirits. By magic words, the seven sons of Siva assume there is a power at work in the world to be reconciled to, or else they wouldn't be in this business, right? They want their magic words to affect that reconciliation. But they deny that the power of powers is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they deny that the only hope for men and women under sin's curse, buried under a world of death and demons, is to be reconciled to the power that is over all powers through faith in Jesus Christ. These are satanic exorcists. By what power and unto what power are the sons of Siva doing their work? Satan in both cases. It is by Satan's power and it is to Satan's power that they are working, though they do not know it. Now here's a big point of application. Beloved, any helper who comes to you in your personal life with an appearance of godliness but does not encourage you and teach you to rest in the finished work of Christ, who alone has reconciled sinners to the power above all earthly powers, all such helpers are unwittingly doing the work of the devil for you. And if you let them into your life, you are inviting them to do the work of the devil with your problem. We often invite these helpers into our lives because we feel we do not have control of our lives or control of our homes or control of our marriages or control of our children or control of our health or our relationships or a host of other earthly circumstances that we really don't have control of. (laughs) So we look for help. And in our desperate misery, we invite someone with a technique exorcism to Come and help us. Someone we have been told will make things right between us and powers we cannot control. Beloved, this is a trick of demons. There are conferences. There are books. Conferences and books under Christian banners even. Conferences and books filled with Christian attendees even, where the helpers on the stage are not encouraging people to rest in the blood of Jesus Christ that has reconciled them to all powers above earthly power. No, the helpers on the stage, under the appearance of godliness, 
are lathering up the $300 per head attendees with all sorts of laws, all sorts of techniques that actually put Jesus in shadows, that put the cross in darkness, and get the flesh all excited with its ability to control conflict, to control grief, to control death. Let me give you two examples of this right from Scripture. Here is an example of technique exorcism. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And you think so far like, boy, that's, that sounds terrible. I wonder how, how wild that's going to be. What, what wild and crazy teachings of demons do they advance? Now listen to what he says. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Teachings of demons. The technique of exorcism in that text is you get control of your life before God and before man by saying no to things God has created for your good. It's the teaching of devils under the appearance of godliness. Here's another example from Colossians 2, verse 20. Paul again says, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Beloved, do you know who wants you to be lathered up with things that are of no value in stopping your fleshly indulgence? Do you know who wants you to have that? The devil. And he brings it to you under this austere-sounding language. Don't eat that. Don't drink that. The techniques of exorcism in that passage are promising to stop the flesh from indulging itself. They will not. The gospel of Jesus Christ says something far different. It says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.2. That requires faith. That is not a technique. That is a heart that has been opened and has received all that Christ has done for the lonely sinner. He has reconciled your life to all the powers that could ever possibly touch it. And so if you are in a fourth car accident in 24 months, don't say to yourself, boy, the devil really must have me. He must 
really be ruling my life. I can't believe I've had my fourth car accident in, a, in 24 months. It's exactly how Satan wants you to think, to give him the honor. And then go find some technique exorcist to help you find out what in your life keeps getting Satan annoyed at you that he causes another car accident. Jesus Christ has reconciled you. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you deserve much worse than four car accidents in 24 months. Outside of Christ, you deserve an eternal car crash. But Jesus Christ has reconciled you to the power that is above all earthly powers. So when you do have your fourth car accident, yes, there may be a need to talk to your spouse, (laughs) but to rest in Jesus Christ is the first order of business. That the powers of the earth are all reconciled to you through his body and blood. He has forgiven your sins and has given you everything. Even those our accidents will be sanctifying. Even those accidents are a platform now upon which you testify that you fear no powers, that you don't listen to anybody who says the devil's after you. Christ has reconciled you to the Almighty. You're his beloved child. As we look unto our Lord's finished work for us by faith, the immeasurable greatness of God's power, Paul's language in Ephesians, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, it becomes more and more clear, more bright, more strong in us, and we start talking like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. And that makes me want to go burn a few books that I've been given over the years. Little technique exorcism books that come into my hand under the appearance of godliness, but they deny the power and wisdom of the cross which has reconciled me to all powers. Now, moving faster, verse 15. The evil spirit speaks to the seven sons. Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Why does the evil spirit not say, who is Jesus? Because the evil spirit recognizes those who are real threats to Satan's kingdom. The seven sons of Siva and their exorcism show is no threat, for they have no renown among the devils, which means the seven sons themselves are under the rule of Satan, not a danger or threat to Satan, and under the, and under the devil's rule, they are not loved, nor are they known. That they are under his rule is even more clear in verse 16. And the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, the seven sons, mastered all of them, the seven sons, overpowered them, the seven sons, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And when they came out of that house naked and wounded, beaten up by an evil spirit, do you know who they looked like? 
the Gerizine demoniac, who lived among the tombs naked, out of his mind, controlled by a demon named Legion, who is many. Now the exorcists need an exorcist. And there is but one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look how they are ruled by the evil spirit. I am convinced that it's the Lord Jesus who sent this evil spirit to overpower them and strip them and beat them. Because all Satan's minions are under the authority of Christ, just like when he cast legion into that herd of pigs. The Lord sends this evil spirit to give those who are evil a taste of that kingdom. And let us remember something then from verse 16. You can have Jesus in your mouth while at the same time you are mastered by the devil. No wonder our Lord said, Woe to you who draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. In verse 17 we read, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Beloved, what do a people look like when the fear of Jesus' authority and power is upon them? Are they cowering in a corner? No, because they know why he is at the right hand of the Father in heaven in their own flesh. He is there as a forgiving Savior, using his power to bring them out of eternal death. So what do a people look like who have the fear of the Lord Jesus upon them? They extol his name. And that immediately leads to this rather common action in the church of Jesus Christ. They come confessing their sins, divulging their practices, and burning their books. We're having a book burning this afternoon. I'm not sure why you're laughing. No, we're not. Beloved, hear this loud and clear. To extol Jesus Christ brings about a natural disregard for the old ways of sin. Remember, there's no command for this book burning. There's not even a command here from Paul for this confessing and divulging. It's a natural continuation of the extolling of Jesus Christ in their hearts through faith. They want to come and accuse themselves. As pastors and elders, we have seen this many times. One of the provisions in our book of church order for church discipline is the man or the woman who comes as their own accuser. We've seen this several times with people, even young people, when they find themselves entangled in some sin, and they come and accuse themselves before the elders. And it is a, it is a testimony to us that Jesus Christ is being extolled in their heart. They recognize that Jesus is coming to them in a preemptive judicial reckoning, and they want to know that their sins are forgiven. And we assure them that they are, even if we have to rebuke them in the process or censure them. Beloved, this is what your life looks like 
when Jesus Christ is being extolled in your heart. And for most of you, the corporate confession of sin every Sunday is a sincere divulging and confessing that you partake in gladly and sincerely because Christ has a fear of him upon you. And lastly, verse 18, and also many of those who were now believers came confessing, oh, I read the wrong verse, my fault. Lastly, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Did you hear that last little bit? The word of the Lord is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the kingdom of Jesus. But look at those last little bit. Prevailed mightily. Luke, quite cleverly, has used the exact same Greek expression that he used earlier to describe the beating that the seven sons of Siva had received from the evil spirit. It said that the evil spirit, in verse 16, overpowered them. Same Greek word here, prevailed mightily. Jesus Christ is the only one, the only power among all powers who prevails. And how does he prevail? With a sword? With a gospel. With a declaration that he alone reconciles those who deserve condemnation. He alone takes you out of Satan's kingdom and brings you into his own, where you are known, forgiven, and protected and defended until the very end of the age from all earthly powers. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it prevail mightily, beloved, in you. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we first confess ourselves. We first divulge ourselves that we are often embarrassed by such a display of repentance that we see in our text today. And Father, we confess that it's, it's been even the secret hope that we didn't know we had that we would perhaps never have to be associated with Christians who burn their books. But we confess also, Lord, that such an embarrassment is somehow set into our heart by the age that is passing away. It is not an embarrassment that's set there by the age to come. Forgive us, Lord. And Father, we also confess that we are often attracted to the magic of technique to the exorcisms of technique. So much so, Lord, we confess that we often lust for somebody who will come to us under the the guise of godliness and give us a technique to solve our problems. And we are content, oh, forgive us, content to not have our faith strengthened in the finished work of Christ, but to have our flesh stirred Oh, Father, please forgive us. And Father, we do pray that 
we ourselves would freely, as Jesus is extolled in our hearts, as the fear of him rests upon us, recognizing that there is none with whom we have to deal, no power, no principality, but him alone with whom we have to deal. And he shows us his nail-scarred hands. Father, may we freely then continue to confess and rid ourselves of those things from the kingdom of Satan, those things that have been an absolute hindrance to our prospering in the ways of Christ, those things that we would never want to disciple another person in, may we excise them from our lives to the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus Christ, who gives us the power to do so. In his name, amen.